You're listening to Ask the Expert on Sprott Money News. Welcome back to part two of the Sprott Money News Ask the Expert series for September 2019. Our guest this month is best-selling author and analyst Jim Rickards. And in part number one, Jim answered questions that are important to all investors, including the role of a global reserve currency, the importance of national gold reserves, and why the Fed targets a 2% inflation rate. In this next segment, Jim answers even more of your questions regarding such important topics as the ongoing global shortage of U.S. dollars and the conditions under which he might increase his own allocation toward physical gold and take it past 10%. While you're listening, please keep in mind that Sprott Money is one of the world's most trusted precious metals dealers. This month, Eric Sprott's personal favorite is on sale. And of course, we're talking about the beautiful Royal Canadian Mint gold maple leaf coin. We've got random years of those for you, all of them at just $36.99 over spot. So please give us a call at 888-861-0775 or of course just visit SprottMoney.com for more details. Thanks again for listening and I hope you enjoy part number two of Ask the Expert with Jim Rickards. All right, Jim, we're getting close to being halfway through the questions. Uh, question six gets back to from where here in that uh, what country do you think will be the first to offer some sort of asset-backed alternative to the U.S. dollar? Uh, I think it will be um, a combination of Russia and China, uh, and they're working on it already. This will be a, a digital currency. Uh, it'll be what's called a permissioned distributed ledger. That's a fancy name for a blockchain with one big difference. Uh, if you look at Bitcoin, I'm not a fan of Bitcoin. I think that's pretty well known, but... But Bitcoin is a permissionless system, which means you don't need permission to mine Bitcoin. You can mine Bitcoin, trade Bitcoin, buy them, sell them, store them, do whatever you want, and you don't have to ask anybody's permission. You can just kind of jump into the pool. A permissioned uh, blockchain, a permissioned distributed ledger, is more like a club. You can only join the club if the membership committee says so. Um, and so Russian China could start their own digital um gold back cryptocurrency uh invite certain parties in so who would it be it would be iran turkey you know north korea all the bad actors all the people who are subject to u.s sanctions uh and then perhaps others you know china might twist hong kong's arm and get hong kong to join make it a you know then you have a financial center and maybe a country like brazil would join because of the BRICS affinity you know remains to be seen but uh but something like that and then you would trade among yourselves. Um, you know, China would sell uh, infrastructure to Russia, and Iran would sell oil to China, and Russia could sell weapons to Iran, and, and so on. And you would keep scoring this new currency, and then periodically, once or twice a year, settle up in gold. And of course, you need, if you're settling uh, with gold on a net basis, meaning, you know, my sales to you net out against your sales to me, the net number is always a lot smaller than the gross number. And so you don't need as much gold if you're going to settle on a net basis. So there you'd have a hybrid structure with, with a digital cryptocurrency to keep score on the balance of payments and then settle up on a net basis in gold. You can see that coming in the next few years. They're already working on it. Um, and then the question is, what does the United States do about it? I've advised you know, U.S. government officials, uh, you got to get ahead of that and start, start buying more gold. 
and which would have the impact, of course, of driving the price of gold up, which would make it harder for China and Russia to achieve their goals. But it's amazing. We're now into almost the third generation of scholars who have been uh, miseducated or uneducated uh, as to the monetary role of gold. So um, I do get the meetings, but it's uh, it's hard sell. I haven't seen any indication that the U.S. is leaning in that direction. You're lonely in those meetings, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Jim, question seven. Uh, it's described as a war on cash. Uh, maybe just a different way to say it is we're moving toward a cashless society, it seems. How would a cashless society affect the value of physical precious metal? Well, it would be very bullish for physical precious metals because that's your own alternative. Um, now, uh, there's, there's been a lot of reporting on this, a lot of development. Uh, and, and yeah, some countries, and I saw a story the other day, we're in Sweden, people are getting implanted with chips. Uh, and, you know, that little microprocessors, and then when you want to pay for something, you don't even forget about, uh, you know, Apple Pay or uh, Venmo or something. You just wave your hand. And, of course, it, digitally the transaction is recorded, the money comes out of your account, and, you know, and you kind of go on from there. Um, Central banks and monetary authorities favor this, and the reason is if they want to go to negative interest rates, which they do, and they have in some cases, um, how do you as, a, as an individual, how does anyone get around negative rates? So I put you know $100,000 in the bank, I go away, I come back a year later, and there's, uh, there's $99,000 in the bank because there's a 1% negative rate. I mean, that's sort of the future. I, one metaphor I use, you know, if you're going to slaughter uh, cattle, you herd them into a pen uh, before the slaughter. Well, by the same token, if monetary authorities want to slaughter savers with negative rates, you've got to herd them into a pen, and that pen has to be digital. Because right now, in the example I gave, uh, if you had that, well, I could march down to the bank and say, well, give me 100000 in cash, you know, and put it in a safe place and come back a year later. And guess what? You still have $100,000. Uh, they, they can't take money away from cash. And the, and the authorities know this. So they've got to eliminate cash as the first step in getting negative rates because you would first eliminate cash. Then you herd everybody into a digital uh, slaughterhouse, if you will. And then you hit them with negative rates, which is just a tax, just taking their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you say, well, how do I get around that? Well, cash is one way, but if, ca- if cash no longer exists, and that is the way we're heading, uh, then what else can you do? Well, the answer is you can buy gold. It's physical. It's digital. You can't hack it. You can't take it away. And um, uh, so gold is a way around negative rates, and that would increase the demand for gold. I think be very bullish for gold. Yeah. All right. Question eight. There's a lot of talk these days about a global shortage of U.S. dollars. Uh, can you explain that in kind of simple terms for everybody? And then second, is there any limit to the central bank balance sheets? Uh, well, I'll answer the second question first. There is no legal limit to the central bank balance sheets. At least that's true for the Federal Reserve and other uh, major central banks. There may be some countries somewhere in the world where there's some statutory limit, but but not the Fed. The Fed can take its balance sheet as far as they want, and that's what these modern monetary theorists, uh, people like Professor Stephanie Kelton and others, are talking about. They're they're saying you know the the U.S. actually can afford. You know, the Green New, New Deal, Medicare for all, child care for all, free tuition. What's the problem? Just borrow the money, spend it, and have the Fed monetize the debt, and there's no limit on the balance sheet. Well, that's legally true. That's legally possible. My question or my rebuttal to that is, well, there may not be a legal limit, 
but there's a psychological limit. There comes a time when um, everyday citizens just look at the central bank printing money uh, like it's going out of style and saying, you know what, I don't, I'm not a PhD monetary economist, but I'm out of here. Get me out of the dollar. I'll buy gold, buy silver, buy land, buy water, natural resources, a new car, whatever, but just get me out of the dollar because um, this looks like it's, you know, uh, going to have a very unhappy or hyperinflationary ending. And, of course, then that causes the hyperinflation. That's the, what we call self-fulfilling prophecy. So that, that's where that ends up. So there's no legal limit on uh, central bank balance sheets, but there could, I think, well, not good, there is a psychological limit. The problem is you don't know it until it's too late. You hit the limit and cause a crisis, uh, and you're like, oh, gee, we have a crisis. Well, yeah, but couldn't you see that coming? That's really, that's really the, uh, the question. So, um, so going back to the, uh, uh, the dollar shortage, the first part of the question, the dollar, there is a dollar shortage. Some people, a serious one, and people are surprised to hear that. They're like, wait a second, didn't the Fed print you know, $4 trillion of money supply between 2008 and 2014? The answer is yes, they did. But the world created $100 trillion of debt. In other words, um, yeah, you got more money, but you get way more debt. And so just those two numbers, you leverage 25 to 1, which is extremely highly leveraged. If you, if you were running a hedge fund, you'd probably be out of business. But, um, of course, the Fed is, you know, is in a hedge fund. It's a central bank, and so, uh, so they can leverage that. But, but the problem is even uh, that much debt has to be supported by some money. You can't have zero money. Uh, if you're financing the debt in the repo market, you need collateral. Uh, if your financing bank doesn't like your collateral, they can assist on treasuries. They can increase haircuts. And that's what's going on in the world today. Banks are more and more wary of leveraged debt. They're calling their customers and saying, hey, I'm not taking your corporate bonds anymore. Get me treasuries. Or I'm not giving you a, uh, you know, a, a 50 basis point haircut. I'm giving you a two, two basis point haircut or two, sorry, 2% haircut. Etc. Well, all of that activity that your banks pulling away from the lending market, insisting on better collateral, insisting on larger haircuts, etc., as applied to leveraged non-bank players, increases the demand for cash. So that's what's going on right now. People are like, "Wait, well, where am I going to, where am I going to get the cash to do this?" Um, and that's why the um, uh, the repo markets uh, start to seize up a little bit uh, toward the end of September, and that's why. Uh, the Fed did these emer- emergency kind of you know system of the market operations with uh, a repo supplying cash. The problem with that is the Fed can put cash into the system and take treasuries as collateral anytime they want. But yeah, cash in the system does alleviate the cash shortage, but there's also a collateral shortage. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, you're putting cash in, but you're taking treasuries out. Well, these leveraged players, they need the treasuries also. They need cash and treasuries because um, they either have to either take larger haircuts or supply better collateral. So this is not, it's kind of a silent uh, crisis right now. It hasn't hit the, well, the, the repo thing hit the headlines, but very few people understand it. But this is not a problem in itself. This is symptomatic of a larger problem, which, which is the fact that there's a dollar shortage. But it's because the Fed was tightening from, for two years by raising rates and reducing the balance sheet. So, um, but remember, monetary policy always works with a lag. So no one should be surprised that we're seeing a uh, dollar shortage today based on tightening in 2017 and 2018. So just to follow up, Jim, then, does that make more Fed 
QE inevitable and maybe sooner rather than later? Well, it may. Uh, remember, the QE won't come until rates hit zero. So a lot of people are like, oh, the Fed's going to do QE. Well, two things. Number one, they're not going to do it before they hit zero. So you're at least a year away okay. from QE because you've got seven more rate cuts. Uh, if that's what it is, uh, seven more rate cuts, 25 basis point seats before you hit zero. So QE could be in the cards, but it's at least a year away. But these uh, these repos that the Fed's doing, I mean, they're just another form of QE. Yeah. It's 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 not officially QE, but if I'm printing money to buy Treasury notes from Goldman Sachs and I put the money in the Goldman Sachs account by just because I say so, in other words, money from thin air, uh, yeah, you can dress it up as, as an open market operation or a repo, but it's just another form of money printing. So in a way, they're already doing it. Jim, you're being very generous with your time, and, and we very much appreciate it. I've got just a handful more questions that I want to make sure I ask you because they were submitted uh, by Sprott Money customers, and I want to make sure I get to them. Um, question nine kind of follows up with something you mentioned earlier. Uh, besides gold, what other hard assets do you recommend? Um, energy, water, silver, and land. Okay, fair enough. Uh, question 10, you kind of mentioned back uh, a few moments ago, so I think this is a good segue out of that. Uh, does the EU banking sector still present a systemic risk to the current monetary system? Uh, yes and no. What I mean by that is there are uh, major EU banks um, that are you know, maybe technically insolvent or potentially in distress, but they're also too big to fail. So they will be uh, bailed out by the um, whatever central bank uh, you know, is in whatever country that the bank happens to be located. Um, so then what you have to ask yourself is uh, two things. Number one, it's not whether the bank's in bad shape. They're in terrible shape. The question is, what does a bailout look like? And, of course, we have these new rules. That they call it bail-in. Uh, but what that means is that depositors may be at more risk. You, you, all, all of your deposits may not be made whole as they were in 2008-2009. Um, so, so the way it would work, in a nutshell, stockholders would be wiped out. Um, bondholders would take haircuts to the extent there's still a hole in the balance sheet. Uh, depositors would uh, lose money to the extent it exceeds the insured limit. And everybody who lost money might get some stock in a newly recapitalized bank. So you know, there you are. You think you're a bank depositor and you end up as a, with a reduced deposit and a couple of shares of stock. So that's what a bail-in looks like, but they will, um, so are they in distress? Yes, but they're too big to fail, so, uh, but don't look for a 100% bailout that you got in 2008. You might be surprised to learn that um, your deposit has been uh, knocked in half and they sent you a few shares of stock. Is there one tipping point that could really send that crisis spiraling again? Sure. I mean, that's how crises work. Uh, there, there are... People say, what is it? Well, it's a long list. I could give you a hundred different yeah. things that might trigger it, but in a way, it doesn't matter. What matters is the uh, the complexity, the scale, the the instability, which makes it uh, makes you pretty sure that it will happen. Uh, timing is always uh, more difficult. Uh, but uh, again, I could give you a list, but what I tell people is that the thing that triggers it is probably something that no one has thought of. Uh, the, those are the real shock. I, I, I see things happen all the time, and people say, "Well, there's a black swan, or there's a black swan." I was like, "No, if you knew what it was, you knew, and you knew it could be coming, it's not a black swan. The, the real black swan is the thing that nobody thought of." Yeah. Uh, but, but 
the answer to that is, well, you don't need a crystal ball. Just know what's going to happen and get ready. What are you you, uh, waiting for? Yeah. All right. Just a few to go. Uh, Question 11. Do you believe, personally, uh, that the global central banks actively support the global equity markets? Indirectly, yes. Now, some of them do it directly. Some central banks buy stocks, and right. Japan is is a good example of that. The Federal Reserve doesn't buy stocks, but what? Just look at the, the you know the stock major stock indices have been trading in the range. I think the Dow Jones kind of hits twenty seven thousand and heads south, and then hits twenty four twenty five thousand and goes north again. So it's been trading in that range for uh, years. But what are the catalysts for that? Well, it's basically rate cuts. So the Fed doesn't have to go out and buy stocks. All they have to do is cut rates, and guess what? The stock market gets a boost. And yesterday, uh, or recently, uh, um, there have been many good examples of that. So uh, I would say indirectly, uh, they are supporting stocks by cutting rates, and they will continue to do so. Um, and, and here's the next to last question, and I, I, I per have a personal interest in this one. It seems like the politicians always blame each other for this growing gap in wealth and income disparity, but really you can trace it back to 1971 on most of the charts. Uh, that gap continues to grow that between you know those with the wealth and the high income versus those that don't have that. Uh, what do you think is the best monetary system for reversing this trend? Uh, there isn't one. Uh, monetary uh, systems don't have – they're all rigged uh, in favor of the wealthy. They're rigged in different ways at different time periods, but none of them uh, are able to reduce income inequality. There are only uh, four things that uh, reduce income inequality. Uh, one is mass mobilization warfare, uh, such as World War II, which everyone points to in the 1950s as a golden age of, you know, relatively uh, low inequality or greater uh, quality, if you want to put it that way. Uh, well, that's true, but we just come to World War II with 100 million dead. Uh, so the second one is uh, plague. Uh, we saw that in the 14th and 15th century when the Black Plague wiped out uh, between one half and one third, uh, so one third and one half the population of Europe. Uh, it was a great time for labor. Uh, people got real wage increases and income inequality was reduced in the late 14th and um, through most of the 15th century because half the people were dead, so it was easy to get a job and demand higher wages. Um, the third thing is uh, revolution, but I mean a real revolution, not a, not a street demonstration, but something like what happened in China in 1949. Um, and then finally, a systemic collapse. Uh, um, you know, kind of, kind of something we've seen, for example, in Venezuela, but on a, on a much larger scale, like the collapse of a civilization. Uh, you saw something like that uh, after World War One, when those five empires uh, all collapsed, uh, you know, the Ottoman, the Austro-Hungarian, uh, the German, um, and several others. So uh, so that's what it takes. So, But people are like, hey, wait a second, do I really want the Black Plague? Uh, yeah. uh, 100, million, 100 million dead or a revolution or a societal collapse? The answer is generally no. Uh, so that means income inequality is inevitable. <laughs> that's what I was thinking to myself. I was like, that's a pretty dire way to work our way out of this. I guess we need to root for more uh, income inequality and wealth inequality. Um, yeah, but, but uh, on a serious note, there is a, a 4,000-year, highly rigorous, highly researched academic study that goes through what I just described. Yeah.
Yeah. All right, Jim, we've reached the end. I've got one last question for you. And again, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, you'd mentioned earlier that uh, you like to recommend a 10% asset allocation for gold. And as long as I follow you, I know you're pretty consistent with that. Uh, under what conditions would it be wise to exceed a 10% allocation? If you actually saw the signs of inflation, right now there aren't any. Uh, could it happen? Sure. But uh, there, there are no signs of that. So, but side by side with the, with the 10% allocation to gold, um, I also recommend a 30% allocation to cash. And people will say, wait, Jim, why would you want cash when you're the one talking about, you know, the depth of the dollar and all that? The answer is I wouldn't want it forever, but I like it for now because it reduces volatility in the portfolio. It's a deflation hedge. Let's not rule out deflation. But most importantly, it has embedded optionality. So you can be the one to pivot to another asset class when the time comes. So the idea that, you know, I give you an allocation, you write it down, and you, you, you do it, and then you, 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 know, you, you don't change it, that's not true. This is a starting place where you have to be very alert. You have to be prepared to pivot. And with stronger signs of inflation, you might take the cash and buy more gold. I'm not recommending that today, but you have that optionality, whereas people who are fully invested in the liquid things are going to be stuck. So watch inflation would be the the main thing you'd watch, uh, quantitative easing, yeah. all that kind of stuff? Well, I don't, I don't, quantitative easing doesn't cause inflation. Okay. Uh, what causes inflation is a change of psychology. So that's what you watch for. Gotcha. Well, as we begin to wrap up, We've obviously talked a lot about physical gold and the value of that in your portfolio. you got to store that stuff someplace. You can keep it in your own safe. Uh, that's always a, a great alternative. But you can also open a storage account with Sprott Money. We Not only do we uh, offer great deals on bullion, we also will store it for you uh, in secure locations, six of them around the globe. If you sign up for Sprott International Storage, you'll also receive exclusive deals to buy more bullion. So again, call us anytime. 888-861-0775 or of course visit SprottMoney.com for more details. We've been speaking with best-selling author and analyst Jim Rickards. Just fantastic information, Jim. Uh, again, encourage everybody, you want to learn more, pick up one of Jim's books, the latest one being uh, titled Aftermath. Just required reading for anybody that wants to really stay on top of the situation and begin to look ahead to where we might go from here. Jim, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Craig. And from all of us at Sprott Money News and SprottMoney.com, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again in October. <laughs>